Well, let's take our Bibles and we'll look at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 12 this morning. Uh, is it warm in here? Does anybody need air conditioning? How many of you are warm? A little bit warm? Okay. Caleb, can you click the air conditioner on? I think it should be on cool. Um, and uh, let's see what that does. Uh, that means that I'm going to get nice and cool, I think, up here. But that's okay. Matthew chapter 12, as you can see from your uh, handout, um, we are looking today uh, and next week about uh, looking at the question, how can I know God's will for my life? Uh, several of you have asked me that question, and uh, I think it would be good for us to give some attention to that uh, together. Okay, that's a question that all of us uh, want to answer because we all want to do God's will, right? If you don't want to do God's will, something is wrong down in your heart. But if you do, that says a lot about God's work in you. So let's see what we can find from the scriptures together today and next week about this, okay? Let's just pray and ask the Lord to give us insight. Lord God, we are sinful people. And you have begun in us the good work of changing us by your Holy Spirit to walk according to your will and in your ways. And yet, Lord, that process is not complete. Uh, we continue to be plagued by our flesh and by sin, and we do not always walk according to your will. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show us this morning uh, the truth from your word that knowing your will begins, first of all, with our personal transformation. And we ask, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, all of ours, to see in the scripture uh, what you have told us here about our place before you and our uh, responsibility uh, to do your will. And we ask this in Christ's name. Perhaps you've heard the story about the man who wanted to know God's will for his life. The man had thought long and hard about what he wanted to make of his life. And after much thought and contemplation, he had concluded that the best thing for him would be if he could live the rest of his life in the very center of God's will. He'd heard his pastor speak frequently about finding the center of God's will and settling down there. The man had never really considered that idea before, but the pastor seemed to end just about every sermon with that appeal to get into the center of God's will, to get right with God. It seemed to be the safest place for him. And of course, all of that seemed very logical to him. If the center of God's will was the safest place, then if only he could find the center of God's will, he would have arrived at the place of safety. His pastor had told him as well that God's word had the answer to every question of life. And this man took his pastor's word seriously. What his pastor had not told him was how to use his Bible to answer some of these questions. And so the man thought and concluded that the best way to find God's will through the Bible was to flip it open randomly, to place his finger on a verse and to read that verse. Surely God would guide his finger so that now he would know God's will. Surely his actions, God would use his actions to reveal his will. 
And so the man picked up his Bible and paused. It was risky business to surrender his life to God's will. What would God require of him? Would he have the fortitude to obey? It seemed that this was the only path to safety and blessing. And so holding the Bible loosely, he let it fall open to a passage of Scripture. He laid the open Bible on the table. He closed his eyes tight and he looked up to heaven and offered a prayer for God's direction. And then, ever so slowly, he set his finger down upon a passage before him. He opened his eyes and looked down and read, Judas went out and hung himself. Not thinking that God could really have heard his prayer for direction, he closed his Bible and opened it again to another page. He offered another prayer and again he laid his finger on the page and opened his eyes to read, Go thou and do likewise. That didn't quite fit his idea of what he thought God's will should be for his life. And so he repeated the exercise once more. Once more, he breathed the prayer, laid his finger ever so reverently upon the Bible. And this time the passage read, do whatever he tells you. Somehow God's will did not seem so safe anymore. The path of safety seemed to lie elsewhere, not through that exercise. That story, I'm sure, is not true, but perhaps you've heard it. Uh, I've heard it once or twice in my life. It does seem, though, to represent the understanding that many Christians have of finding and knowing and doing the will of God. The whole idea of knowing God's will, discerning God's will, is pretty hazy in our minds. There's a lot of fog in most Christians' minds, I think, regarding how to answer that question of how we come to know the will of God. And that's a really difficult thing for us because as Christians, we want to know and do the will of God. There are very few things that a Christian desires more than to do what pleases his Lord. And so for some Christians, this is a constantly perplexing problem. How do I find the will of God so that I can do it? To them, God's will seems always a bit hard to find, and they can't understand why God does not reveal it more clearly to them. If God wants me to do his will, why doesn't he show it to me? Other Christians seem to have mastered the art of discerning God's will. In fact, they have mastered the art so well that their lives never really seem to settle down. The Spirit of God is always pulling them hither and yon, And their obedience to the will of God means grass never grows under their feet. It seems that God can never quite make up his mind about where he wants them to be. But one thing is certain, they are following the will of God to every corner of the earth. At any rate, the one thing God never seems to require of those believers is steady faithfulness in one place for any length of time. And both versions of Christianity are highly unstable. The first set of Christians is never really sure what God's will is. They never really seem to have figured it out. And so that leaves them vulnerable and unsure of what the next step should be in their life. They totter along through their Christian lives, never really sure of where they are going. If being in the center of God's will is the safest place to be, then it's not safe to get out of bed in the morning until you know what God's will is for you during the day. You might end up outside the center of God's will, and that would not be safe. We don't generally have a good sense of what God wants me to eat for breakfast, 
or what he wants me to do with my day and the fear of moving into my day without a strong sense of what God's will is for me is paralyzing. The weight of it is crushing. It's not safe to get out of bed unless I know what God's will for my life is. And so as a result, Christians in this category often float along with little or no purpose in their lives. They have no direction, very little motivation to step forward to do anything. They fill their days with unproductivity because to move forward without a clear sense of what God's will is, is risky business indeed. The other set of Christians can never seem to settle down anywhere long enough to actually do the will of God. God seems more interested in keeping them moving than in seeing them settle down and become productive Christians in any one area of life. Motion seems to equal holiness, and this version of holiness is about as unstable as a leaf blown by every wind. Now, knowing and doing the will of God was the lifeblood of Jesus of Nazareth. Psalm 40, verse 8, is a messianic prediction. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That is the heart cry of every follower of Jesus Christ. I would love to do your will, Lord. It is my heart's desire. Now, what is your will so that I may do it? Lord, show me your ways and I will walk in them. What is your will for me tomorrow morning? How can I know God's will for my life so that I may do it? There are a number of passages of scripture that I think would be helpful for us to work, to work through to put these questions together. And what we're going to find is that God is far more interested in transforming us so that we do his will than in giving us a formula to discern his will for our lives. In fact, being transformed, Paul tells us, being sanctified is the will of God for every Christian. And it is only when that is our chief pursuit that we are in any, any place to discern and do the will of God. And for the task of sanctification, God gives us ample direction. We are not in the dark about that. Pursuing sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness, is actually the only way to know and do God's will. There is no shortcut to it. Now, before we get to what the scriptures have to say to us about this, I just want to think with you about a couple of questions that you have there. I think I've included two of them, though I think I have three. Um, I want to consider three questions about knowing God's will for my life. And I think it's important for us to get these settled ahead of time. And we're not going to look at specific passages of scripture for each one. What I'm doing here is I'm hoping to draw on your knowledge of your Bible. And I think that there are plenty of passages of scripture that we could go to to answer some of these questions. The thing of it is, if we went to all the passages of scripture, we might be here for a long time. So I'm gonna draw on your general knowledge of the scripture. And I think that what we look at here, these questions and the answers we come to, uh, will really make a lot of sense to you if you've read your Bible for any length of time. The first question I think we ought to think about is this, what is motivating me to seek to know God's will for my life? Why do I wanna know God's will for my life? 
I think a corollary question to that is, for whose sake and well-being do I desire to know God's will? And there's really only two possibilities. I could be saying, Lord, show me your will. Why? For my own well-being. I want to know your will so that it will go well with me. Or I could be saying, Lord, show me your will. I want to do your will. Why? For your sake, O Lord, for your sake. I delight to do your will. Let's think for just a minute about the possibility that we could be concerned to know God's will for our lives for a self-serving motivation, for my own well-being. You have probably heard the statement, the safest place the safest place for you is in the center of God's will. That statement is true, depending on what we mean when we say the safest place for me is in the center of God's will. That statement is intended, I think, anytime someone uses it, it's intended to, to push us forward, to motivate us to find the center of God's will and get into it and stay there. If I don't, it won't be safe. But we need to think carefully about that idea, and I just want to observe several things that I think will make biblical sense to you. The first thing that I want to observe about that statement is that Scripture never speaks to us about God's will as having a center. If you can show me a passage of Scripture that talks about a center or not quite in the center of God's will, I would love to see it. I've looked this past week. Are there degrees of being in God's will? Is there a center... And then the next concentric circle, and the next concentric circle, and the next concentric circle. The scripture never speaks to us in those terms about the will of God. And so, if we want to think about those concentric circles, we have to understand that that's something that my mind has come up with, not something that the scripture says. The second thing that I think we want to think about about that statement is this. Is it true that being in the center of God's will is actually the safest place to be? Safest in what sense? Was that statement true for Joseph? The safest place for you is in the center of God's will. What about for Jesus of Nazareth? He never stepped for a moment outside the center of God's will. How safe was it for him? You say, well, not physically safe, but spiritually safe. Okay, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we don't want to think that I'll have a life of roses if I can just find the, life, find the center of God's will and get into it. Uh, the Christian life in the center of God's will is far less rosy than the, than the unbeliever's life outside of God's will is frequently. They live a better life than we do quite frequently. So much so that Psalm 73, the psalmist can look at the wicked and say, which, which one of us is actually prospering? I was about to slip, my foot was about to stumble when I looked at the prosperity of the wicked. Third, this statement lays the motivation for getting in the center of God's will in the wrong place. Why should we get into the center of God's will? Because that's the safest place for me, right? It's the safest and best course of action for me. My motivation for doing the will of God is for me, for my sake. So whose will am I really seeking to do? Is it for my own well-being 
alone that I ought to do the will of God. Do I do the will of God because it pays off? Do I want to know the will of God because I've been told that if I'll get into the center of it, everything will go well? Or do we do the will of God from the heart as bond servants of Christ? We owe this to God because he is our Lord. The fourth thing I want to observe about this statement is to ask the question, is it true that my work of trying to get into the center of God's will and obey him, is it true that my own works bring about a position and a place of blessing and safety? Do I ab- is, it, is it true that safety lies in my own hands to achieve? That if only I could find the center of God's will, work really hard to get there, that I would have safety and blessing. The ultimate experience of safety and blessing will be heaven itself. Do we get there by our works, by staying in the center of God's will? If that is true, then the weight of all of this is staggering. If we obtain safety and blessing by staying in the center of God's will and getting outside that center is unsafe, then I've got a massive amount of responsibility on me. The well-being for my soul and for my life lies in my hands, and the gospel says it doesn't. The gospel says that blessing and safety is a gift of God. And fifth, what we will look at this morning shows that seeking to find the center of God's will because it is the path of safety for you will always lead you outside of God's will. If you say, I want to know your will, O Lord, because it is safest for me to know it and do it. I want that safety for myself. You will always make the wrong choice. You will always end up outside the center of God's will. If the reason you are seeking to know God's will for your life is so that you can have a life of safety and blessing, then you will never find the will of God. And you will see that this morning as we go through the passage of Scripture. That's probably the point that makes least sense to us biblically. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I could seek to know and do the will of God for my own sake and well-being because I think that that's what I should have. The other possibility is that I could seek to know and do the will of God because it is for God's sake that I want to do his will. And that is the right posture and that actually is the heart of every Christian. We must seek to know and do God's will for his sake first of all. This is the heart cry of every Christian. I delight to do your will, O my God. It is my delight, delight to do the will of God. I'm not pursuing God's will for my own well-being. I'm doing the will of God because in my heart, that's what I delight to do. My heart wants it. That is... And that alone is the only proper motivation for seeking to know and do the will of God, that we want to please him. Pleasing our Lord and doing his will is our delight. At every moment where we know that God cares what I choose, that he has a desire about which direction I go, my desire at every one of those moments is to please the Lord, to do his will. But that brings up a very thorny question. If my desire is at every point where God has a will, he wants me to choose this and not this. If my desire is, Lord, at every point I want to choose to do your will, that brings up a very thorny question for us. 
And we'll see that here now in Matthew 12. We look at Matthew 12. We're concerned to know and do God's will in our lives. So when the big questions come up, we are really anxious to know which way to go. There's a lot of money at stake in buying a house, right? The path of safety in that decision is the will of God. So please, Lord, show me your will. I don't want to make a misstep. The consequences could be terrible if I buy the wrong house. So we consult the Lord for his will for all of the big questions of life. Who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I take? But what about slightly less weighty questions like this? Which mattress does God want me to buy? Does he care? What about the question of what car I should drive? Does God care about that? Does God have a will about which car I drive? If he does, then that question, we've got to think hard. What is God's will? Which choice would be most pleasing to him? What about the question of what diet I should indulge in? Whether I should seek medical care for a particular situation? How about a less weighty question still? What about the brand of breakfast cereal I should buy? Does God care about that? If he does, then I have got to find the will of God for even that question if I'm going to please him. What color of clothing do I wear today? Do we stop and consult the will of the Lord about each of those questions? And I think that the response that we would give is, well, no, God doesn't really care about those, right? Does God care what brand of breakfast cereal you buy? Does God really care which choice I make? Do we ever stop to consult the will of God about every word that we utter? Does God have a will about the next word that comes out of your mouth? Or does he not care? Look at Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. God cares about every word you speak. Every single syllable that comes out of your mouth, you could be in or out of the will of God. You could do something that he would commend you for on judgment day. You could speak a word that he would condemn you for on judgment day. On judgment day, he will say to you, my will was that you not speak that single careless word. I cared about every careless word you ever spoke and you violated my will, you sinned. And now you must answer to me in the judgment for every careless word. That is a massive amount of responsibility to get every single decision right. Even down to the words we speak. God has a will about every one of them. And this gets really hard for us to think about when you consider that 95% of our daily living is completely unpremeditated. We do not think about every word we speak. We don't have the time to stop and think about every word that comes out of our mouth. Think of what our conversations would look like if every word that came out of our mouth, we had to have a revelation from God about whether to say that 
or whether that was just a careless word that didn't even need to be said. We don't have the resources to make those decisions all day long, every day. And yet, God cares about every careless word that comes out of our mouths. At how many moments of our lives does God care what we do? Is there ever a time when two choices lie before us and God doesn't really care which one we take? Are there ever any moments when God does not care about what we say or do? God has something pleasing to him for us to do in every moment of our lives. Our lives are full of choices. Choices that either please the Lord or don't. How are we supposed to know what God's will is for my life in every circumstance for every word? Every word that I utter. Think with me about one further question. I think this one is in your notes. Why do you not do the will of God? Okay, so we want to know, okay, Lord, what is your will? But there's plenty of times when we know his will and we don't do it. Right? Why is that? I ask that question because while we like to think really hard about what God's will is concerning the house I buy or the person I marry, we would all acknowledge that there's plenty of areas in our lives every day where we know what the will of God is and we don't do it. We choose to violate and disregard and disobey God's will at hundreds of points every day. If we are concerned to know and do God's will for our lives, we've got to answer this question, why don't I do the will of God that I know I ought to do? Now leave a bookmark in Matthew 12 because we're going to come back to that exact passage in a minute. But I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 to answer that question. Why do we not do the will of God? Think about the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Any angels today who haven't done the will of God? <laughs> Lord, make that true on earth. Question, why is it not true on earth? Why do we not do the will of God? Let's read Ephesians chapter 4. We will start in verse... 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do Gentiles walk? Will of God or not? Not. Don't walk that way, God says. Why do they walk that way? Why do they not do the will of the Lord? That you no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They do it because their minds are blank. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Think about all these people who make such brilliant scientific discoveries. Think about the phone in your pocket. Think about what it took to build that thing. Are those people dumb? They are very intelligent people. And one day before God, they will stand before God and God will say to them, the lights were off the whole time you were on earth. Nothing profitable was going on in your head. Your thinking was futile and empty. You did not understand. Why did they not understand? Was it because no one had ever told them? Look at the next phrase of the verse. 
darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. In this passage, Gentiles walk a certain way. They make certain choices. And God says, don't walk like that. That's not my will for you. It's not my will that my people walk as the Gentiles, but so often we do. Why? Why do the Gentiles walk the way that they do, contrary to the will of the Lord? Why do we walk as we do, sometimes contrary to the will of the Lord? And the answer is because of who the Gentiles are. It's because they're Gentiles with hard hearts. That's why they walk as Gentiles. This verse presents us with a distinction that we don't often stop to ponder. We think that the greatest thing that gets in the way of our doing the will of God is that we don't know what it is. If I could only know what it is, I would do it. This verse tells us something dramatically different. The primary thing missing out there in the world is not knowledge of the will of God, right? Do they know? Got a conscience. They know. The primary thing missing is the heart to do it. Something's broken in them. So they know, but they don't do it. Hardness of heart. And that's why they walk like Gentiles. Because the heart is Gentile heart. And so the walk is Gentile walk. The primary thing missing is not knowledge of the Lord. The primary thing missing is a heart to do it. That's why they don't do the will of the, will of the Lord. Because down in their hearts... They are unchanged. They are hard. Now turn back to Matthew 12. Hopefully it's not too hard to find that again. A little bookmark in there. We read verse 36. Now I want to read verses 33 through 36, okay? Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, that would be out of the good treasure of his heart, right, in the context? The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Why do the Gentiles do what they do? 95% of the time, we don't even think about what we do. God gives us a command like, don't be envious. Does anybody look at a situation that could cause envy and think to themselves, you know, I'm going to wait about 30 seconds, and then I'm going to get really envious. Or does seeing it provoke envy? Do we even think about the choices that we make? Do we even have the bandwidth to think about all of them? 
And the answer is, no, we don't. So if God's will is, don't be envious, how do I even obey and do the will of God? Question, where did the envy come from? In me. If I want to do the will of God, what has to happen? The tree has got to be changed. If we're going to bear good fruit, the tree has got to be changed. Now, change the tree. Good tree. What comes out when the situation of envy lies before me? What comes out is the will of God. And we do not respond in envy. Change the tree and the fruit will be good. Because out of his good treasure, a man brings forth good, good things. It is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of the heart that the emotions react. It's out of the heart that the hands move and the feet walk. So we don't think about 95% of what goes on in our day. And every careless word will be brought into account. How can I do the will of God then with any hope of success? Is it a matter of thinking really hard, Lord, I need a revelation from you so that I know what to do now in this circumstance? Or is it a matter of, Lord, change me so that in the circumstance, I bring forth good fruits? That is why the Gentiles do not do the will of God. And that's why Christians do not do the will of God so many times. Because of the heart. Now the glorious promise of the new covenant is, I will put a new heart within you. I will take out the heart of stone. I will put in a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. How does that happen? How is it that I walk in his ways and do his will? How does that happen? That's what we're going to look at now. Because what we've just answered is, look at your notes, why do I not do the will of God? But the question that we're trying to answer this week and next is, how can I know the will of God? Question for you, why do you not do the will of God? And the reason is, because you must be transformed. An evil tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree brings forth good fruit. Why do we not do the will of God? Because of the state of our hearts. Because we are untransformed. But that's not actually the question we're seeking to answer. We're seeking to answer this question, how can I know the will of God? You say, then why did we go through, how can I, why do I not do the will of God? And the reason why we went through that is this. If we are going to do the will of God, it is necessary that we take our hands off as the primary movers in doing the will of God. If you think all you need to do the will of God is knowledge of what God's will is, you will never find the will of God. Because if God gave you a revelation, a newsflash, in this moment you're supposed to buy this house on such and such a street with this house number. You could go and do the will of God and remain completely unchanged. It doesn't require any transformation to do the will of God if God's just giving you knowledge and that's all that's required. It's just a bit of knowledge and then you do it. To actually do the will of God requires that I change. 
because God is not merely interested in downloading information into my brain so that I do all the right things. God is primarily interested in creating a bride for his son who is holy and without blame, and that starts in the heart. It doesn't start with my actions. And so God has set up our doing of the will of God, our knowing of the will of God in such a way that it is impossible to do his will from the heart unless I'm changed. And so for that reason, let's turn to Romans chapter 12 and look at our first passage of scripture on how we may know the will of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul concludes the verse with a statement of purpose. Why present your bodies? Why avoid being conformed to the world? Why offer up yourself as a living sacrifice? Why be transformed in the, in the, by the renewing of your mind? So that you can discern the will of God. Which means if you want to know the will of God, and you remain untransformed. You remain conformed to this world. And you do not present your body as a living sacrifice. You will never know the will of God. As long as you are holding on to that worldly mindset. I'm going to make the best of my life that I can. I want it to be everything that I want it to be. I want it to be safe for me. That's why I pursue the will of God. Because I want all the benefit for myself. As long as that is our mindset. The world's mindset, God exists for my sake, to keep me safe. If I do his will, as long as that is our mindset, we bear the mindset of the world, we will not discern the will of God. It is only by being transformed that we will know the will of God. So let's look at this passage here just briefly. Paul gives us an opening statement of appeal. I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and we're not going to go through the entirety of these verses. I looked at two different preachers this past week. One of them spent nine sermons on these two verses, nine hour-long sermons on these two verses, and another one spent five hour and 15-minute-long sermons on these verses. So we're not going to go all the way down into the bottom of them. But I do want to point out a couple of things to you. Paul begins with an appeal, brothers, on the basis of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right away, out of the gate, we get an answer to our question of what motivates me to seek the will of God? For my own well-being or for God's? Think of the mercies of God to us. I beseech you, therefore, Paul says, give up your life to God. 
rather than making him give up his life for you. We exist for his sake, not he for ours. Present your body to him. Sacrifice it. Sacrifice yourself to the Lord. That sacrifice is living. It's unlike those Old Testament sacrifices. It's a living sacrifice. But present yourself to the Lord, holy and acceptable. You say, giving myself to the Lord, what am I? Unholy. But when you offer yourself up to the Lord, what does that say about him? What does that say about his worth? To offer your unholy self up to the Lord is to offer up to the Lord a sacrifice that he is worthy of. Everything you have, he is worthy of that. And thus the sacrifice is holy. It is a sacrifice that God receives. It is acceptable before him. This is how we worship God, our spiritual worship. Worship is not a matter of what we do with our hands. Worship is a matter of what we do in our hearts in offering up ourselves to God. Present your bodies. I appeal to you to present your bodies. What does that look like to present my body, to give myself up? It means two things. Don't be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if that is true, you will, by testing, discern what the fear of the Lord is, the good acceptable and perfect will of God. We focus, sorry, skip down in my notes. Knowledge then of what I must do to do the will of the Lord is not actually the necessary component. If I'm to know the will of God in order to do it, well, this verse doesn't lay it on me like that. This verse doesn't say, know the will of the Lord. It says, be transformed. And then you will discern what the fear of the Lord, discern what the will of God is. And God has set it up this way on purpose. As I said, we can get revelations from heaven about God's will for our life. But that doesn't require that you change. God's great purpose is not that you do the right things. It is that you be the right thing. He works all things together, not so that you would do the right thing, but so that you would be made like Christ, be made into the right thing. God sends his revelations to totally pagan individuals like Balaam. And Balaam gets on his donkey because the angel of the Lord came to him and he rides off to do iniquity. He's doing what the angel said, but he's doing it unchanged, full of greed for money, Peter tells us. And so in doing the will of God, he is not doing the will of God because he does not, because he remains unchanged. God is interested in so much more than just getting us to do the right things, to be in the right place at the right time. He's interested in changing us so that as he changes us, the right things come out of our hearts. 
the tree bears good fruit. The right things come out of our heart, things like love and trust and knowledge of him. And so we must focus far less on, does God want me to buy this house or that one? And much more on, Lord, how must I change in this circumstance? What's wrong with me? Renew my mind. Change me. We've got to be transformed before we can know the will of the Lord. Divination does not require transformation. But to make the tree good will produce good fruits. So our need is new hearts because our choices flow from who we are. And by transforming us, God directs us to make God-pleasing choices. In those unpremeditated moments, the words that come out of our mouth are right. Even though we didn't stop to get a revelation from the Lord or to apply a specific passage of Scripture. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying 95% of the time we don't even think about that. So how are we going to make God-pleasing choices in that 95% of the time? It begins with making the tree good. So I want to answer one more question and then look at two more brief passages of Scripture and we'll be done. This will be a short answer, hopefully, to this question. Why is it that we cannot know God's will unless we are transformed? Why has God set it up this way? The answer is that it is through me that God's will becomes known. Okay, look at it. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, present your bodies. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and then you will discern what the fear, what, what the fear, what the will of the Lord is. Discerning is what goes on in my mind. As my mind is transformed and renewed, then I can discern the will of God. And for that reason, if our minds are bent and crooked and misshapen, we won't discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But what about... If God has straightened them out, now we have a greater, greater possibility of discerning the will of the Lord. And in that moment of the right words coming out of our mouths, we cannot know the will of the Lord unless our minds are set right. But it's actually deeper than that because the mind is driven by the heart, by what we love. If my heart is wrong, I will not know God's will for my life and praise the Lord. The promise of the new covenant is that the heart has been set right. And now it is a matter of the mind being set right. And then the affections of the heart will work themselves out through the mind into my daily life. I will discern and do the will of God. We cannot know the, know the will of God for our lives unless we are transformed for several reasons. We just looked at one of them because it is the transformation of the mind that gives us then the ability to test and discern what the will of God is. But the second reason is because the world squeezes us. Paul tells us 
Don't be squeezed into its mold. Not only do we start off as bad trees, but there's a lot of forces to keep us as bad trees, to continue to think like the world. And for as long as my thinking is patterned according to the world's thinking, I will not know the will of God. I must be not conformed to this world, transformed by the renewal of my mind, and then I will be in a place to discern the will of the Lord. Here again with the world, we see the principle that good fruit begins at the level of the tree itself. It is me that the world is seeking to conform to itself. You don't be conformed. You are where all of the discerning of the will of God starts. If you are not, confor- if you are not conformed, if you and your mind are transformed, then you will be in a position to discern the will of the Lord. And the second reason, and this is something that I think about very frequently, why is it that we must be transformed if we, are, if we are to know the will of God? And the reason for that is this. Because my untransformed self has a lot of desires. And those desires corrupt my mind so that it never makes the right decision. We all trust ourselves. We all believe ourselves. We all think we're right. We all think our desires are justified. And so, of course, my desires must be the will of God. They're right, right? God wants me to do right. Well, if I'm telling myself this, I'm the one who's always right in my mind. What my desires are reign supreme. And so, for that reason, as long as I'm still in the mold of the world to seek my own desires, to please myself, trusting in myself, I will always make the wrong decision. And so our pursuit has got to be less on what is the will of God for my life and more on how must I grow to be more like Christ in every circumstance, to have the mind of Christ. And continued growth is required. I want you to look at one more passage of Scripture with me. You can turn to Philippians 1. And then before we read it, I want to put Ephesians 4 and Philippians 1 together for us. Hopefully Philippians 1 will have a little bit more of an impact then. Okay? You remember why we do not do the will of God? We do not do the will of God. We walk as the Gentiles because we need to be transformed. We need new hearts. That was Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. That's why we don't do the will of God. Why do we not know the will of God? The reason we do not know the will of God is because of our need for transformation. We must be transformed if we're to know the will of God. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Growth. Why? So that you may, same word as Romans 12, 2, so that you may discern what is excellent and do it and therefore be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How can you be filled with the fruits of righteousness, of doing right? An abounding love, a growing knowledge, 
transformation. Coming to know God rather than trusting in your own thinking. Continued growth is required. Our love for the world wanes. Our love for God grows. Our knowledge of the world is less and less. Our knowledge of God and His ways grows. At this point, you're saying, yeah, but that doesn't help me know whether to buy house A or house B. And what I want to say to you is this. We've got two more scripture passages, two more sets of scripture passages to look at. But they won't work unless you are transformed. But as you are, then what we will look at next week will actually give you great confidence in knowing and doing the will of God from the heart. Lord God, thank you for giving us clear guidance in your word concerning your will for us and how we are to know it. Lord, we get so consumed with finding and doing your will that we stop to never stop to consider that the reason the tree bears bad fruit is because the tree must be transformed. I pray, Lord, that you would transform us and give us a deep desire to pursue sanctification, to come to think about this world the way that you think about it, to come to view the various events and opportunities through your way of thinking about them. Help us to come to know your heart, the things that you value and love, so that we may copy that and devote ourselves to the things that you value and love. And help us to put the right weight and emphasis upon other people in our lives so that their words to us convey the right weight and significance in discerning which direction we ought to go. And I pray, Lord, that this week you would open up to us the scriptures, show us the glory of Christ in the gospel. It is by the mercies of God that we may answer Paul's appeal to present our bodies, to not be conformed to the world and to be transformed. Lord, we don't want to give up our own way. We want to hold on to our own patterns of thinking. We want to hold on to what seems right to us. We want to trust ourselves. It seems so much more safe until we look at the cross, the mercies of God displayed there, and then we are prepared to present our bodies to you. You are the one who has offered up your son for us, for your glory and for our well-being, but only in that order. And so, Lord, help us to trust your heart in offering ourselves up to you for transformation so that we may know and do the will of God. And we ask this in Christ's name.